Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, Episode 5, The Soviet Space Program. Last time, I talked about the creation of NASA, which centralized the United States Space Exploration Program into a single institution. This time, I will talk about the Soviet Union's organization of its National Space Exploration Program. In short, the Soviet Union had no such program. Although it had launched the world's first satellite, Sputnik had grown out of a ballistic missile program, not a space program. This had happened because as Sergei Korolev neared the completion of the nation's first ICBM, the R-7 missile, he proposed that one of the first R-7s should be used to launch a satellite. He then convinced Nikita Khrushchev that the effort to convert an R-7 missile into a space launch vehicle would be minimal and would not hinder the development of the R-7 for the military. Khrushchev, recognizing that launching the world's first satellite would be a major propaganda boon for the Soviet Union, approved this one-off opportunistic project to showcase Soviet technical prowess. But besides Sputnik, the Soviet Union really had no other plans for outer space. In November 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik 2. But this was another ad hoc project to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Soviet Revolution. And in May 1958, the Soviets launched Sputnik 3. But this was the satellite that Mikhail Tikhonravov built, originally intended as the first Sputnik. Since the effort had already been sunk into building Tikhonravov's satellite, the Soviet Union went ahead and launched it. But after this, the Soviet Union really had no plan for any other activities in outer space. To the outside world, especially the United States, this did not seem to be the case. Sputniks 1, 2, and 3 demonstrated a progressive advance in Soviet satellites, both in complexity and weight. The CIA assumed that the Sputniks must be the product of a well-organized Soviet space program, though there really was none. After Sputnik, Korolev did try to convince his government to organize a space program. Korolev was helped in this by his admission into the Soviet Academy of Sciences in June 1958 after launching Sputnik. Korolev's admission into the Soviet Academy of Sciences was not without controversy. In fact, many members of the Academy scoffed at his admission because Sputnik was an engineering feat, not some major scientific contribution. His admission had obviously been made for political reasons. But now that Korolev was a member of the Academy, he had a formal institutional setting to propose space projects outside the ballistic missile industry, which mainly served the interests of the military. 
1959, Korolev teamed up with the president of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, Mitislav Keldish, to propose the creation of a scientific technical council to oversee a Soviet space program. But the Soviet government rejected Korolev's proposal. Although the government was willing to approve individual space projects, such as the launch of lunar probes and research into manned spaceflight, it was unwilling to create an entirely new organ of government to centralize space projects or oversee a national space exploration program. Thus, from the late 1950s through the 1960s, the Soviet Union did not have any institution that could be described as NASA's equivalent. Instead, Soviet projects would continue to be ad hoc projects that grew out of the Soviet ballistic missile program, just like Sputnik. Because Soviet space projects in the 1960s will continue to be outgrowths of the Soviet ballistic missile program, I want to provide some background on the organization of the ballistic missile program because this organization is the closest thing that we will get to any institution that oversees a national space exploration program. Let me start with an overview. There were three levels of government that oversaw the Soviet Union's ballistic missile program. At the top was the Council of Ministers and the Central Committee of the Communist Party. In the middle, we have the Military Industrial Commission, and at the bottom was the Council of Chief Designers. So now I'll provide a little bit more detail about each of these levels. The Council of Ministers and the Central Committee of the Communist Party were the heads of the Soviet government. The Council of Ministers, chaired starting in 1958 by Nikita Khrushchev, was legally the nation's main executive organ. But because the Soviet Union was a single-party government, the Central Committee was the nation's de facto center of power, since the Communist Party would control whoever took what positions in the legal government. Usually, for important national decrees and policies, both the Council of Ministers and the Central Committee would issue a joint declaration. Beneath the Council of Ministers was the Military Industrial Commission. The Military Industrial Commission was created in 1953 though it originally had a different name. If you will recall from episode 2, Joseph Stalin was quite secretive about the nation's efforts to build an ICBM. As a result, when Stalin died in March 1953, new Soviet leadership was in the dark about the nation's ballistic missile program. To remedy this situation, Khrushchev established the Military Industrial Commission to oversee the ballistic missile industry, and this commission would report directly to Soviet leadership in the Council of Ministers, rather than to the Ministry of Defense. An important fact to note is that the chairman of the Military Industrial Commission was Dmitry Ustinov. As chairman, Ustinov became the main industrial architect of the Soviet Union's ballistic missile program. But, also just as important, he was a friend and ally of Korolev, 
and was willing to entertain Korolev's proposals for space projects. Ustinov was thus important to continuing development of Soviet space projects, because he was occasionally willing to look the other way or to even support Korolev's space projects, even when those projects strictly had little or no value to the military. Finally, at the lowest level of the Soviet ballistic missile program was the Council of Chief Designers. The Council of Chief Designers has its origins back to 1946, when the Soviets sent rocket engineers into Germany to seize German rocket technology. The goal was to restart limited V-2 rocket production as a prelude to creating the Soviet Union's own ballistic missile industry. As a result, these engineers would form the core of the Soviet Union's future ballistic missile program. And in 1946, the main engineers involved in this effort began meeting to coordinate their efforts. By far, the two most important members of the Council of Chief Designers was Sergei Korolev and Valentin Glushko. Korolev chaired the council and was responsible for the overall design of Soviet ballistic missiles. Glushko was in charge of rocket engine designs. So to recap, the Soviet ballistic missile industry was overseen at the top by the Council of Ministers, chaired by Nikita Khrushchev, followed by the Military Industrial Commission, chaired by Dmitry Ustinov, and then by the Council of Chief Designers, chaired by Sergei Korolev. The hierarchy between the leader of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, and the engineer of ballistic missiles, Korolev, was very truncated. But this truncated hierarchy reflected the great importance that the nation placed on its ballistic missile program, especially the creation of ICBMs. This would be like if Werner von Braun had reported directly to the Secretary of Defense, who then reported to the President of the United States. In fact, there was often no separation between Khrushchev and Korolev. Korolev occasionally had direct access to Khrushchev, especially after Sputnik, bypassing Ustinov. In this structure of the Soviet ballistic missile program, there were three ways that a space project could be adopted. First, the military could identify a need and request that the defense industry namely the Military Industrial Commission, satisfy that requirement. An example of this was the military's request for the Zenit Military Reconnaissance Satellite, a project that Ustinov approved and handed to Korolev to execute. Second, political leadership could request a space project for political expediency. Sputnik 2, which Khrushchev asked for to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Soviet Revolution, was one such example. Finally, a space project could be adopted through the proposal of a chief designer, such as Korolev. The first Sputnik is the main example of this. Of the three ways in which space projects could be adopted, a proposal by a chief designer was by far the most common approach. 
but the approval or rejection of a chief designer's space project was often not the result of any formal bureaucratic process or technical review of the project's merits. Instead, the fate of the chief designer's projects often hung on the chief designer's personal relationships with the Military Industrial Commission, the Council of Ministers, and the Communist Party. In light of this, you might think after Sputnik that Korolev would have the prestige and the relationships with Khrushchev and the government to obtain approval for new space projects. He had, after all, won a great propaganda victory for the Soviet Union and was now a hero of socialist labor. But in fact, Korolev was in the doghouse and his political influence was weakening after Sputnik. You see, the goal of the Soviet Union's ballistic missile program was to create an ICBM that could act as an effective countermeasure to the threat of American strategic bombers, which could drop nuclear bombs all over the Soviet Union. Although the launch of Sputnik was spectacular and great, it did not accomplish this key national defense priority. What really mattered to Soviet leaders was not Sputnik, but the capabilities of the R-7 missile that carried Sputnik into space. Although the R-7 was a great accomplishment as the world's first ICBM, it was a very poor weapon of war. The crux of the problem was that the R-7 used a cryogenic propellant, that is, a fuel that must be kept in an extremely cold state. Specifically, this was liquid oxygen, or LOX, or LOX. The use of a cryogenic propellant meant that large, stationary platforms with refrigeration units were necessary to launch the R-7 missile. And building these launch platforms was incredibly expensive. Although the Soviet government initially planned to build 50 launch facilities, only four were ever built due to the enormous cost. The cryogenic fuel also meant that the R-7 could not be kept fueled in a state for launch at any moment. Rather, it would take anywhere between 8 to 10 hours to fuel the rocket for launch. The need for large stationary platforms combined with the long fueling time, meant that the R-7 was not an effective deterrent to nuclear attack. The large stationary refrigeration platforms could easily be spotted by advanced reconnaissance, and the long fuel time for the R-7 meant that the platforms could all be attacked before the R-7 could ever launch. In other words, the United States maintained the superior nuclear first strike capability. The R-7 missile's disappointing performance seriously harmed Khrushchev's confidence in Korolev. Worse, Khrushchev began to question Korolev's commitment to providing for effective national defense. There were alternative fuels available for a rocket that would allow the rocket to be stored in a ready-launch state. But Korolev had insisted on using a liquid oxygen-based fuel mixture because the fuel would provide a higher specific impulse in lifting efficiency.
These were important factors for a space launch vehicle, but not an ICBM. But Korolev insisted that building an ICBM using storable propellants was impossible. Khrushchev, however, was not inclined to believe him, and other engineers told Khrushchev that it was indeed possible to build an ICBM using storable propellants. Korolev's position weakened further in 1959 when the Soviet Union established a new branch of the military, the Strategic Missile Forces. Up until 1959, Soviet missilery was under the command of the Chief of Artillery. This odd structure was due in part to the fact that the Soviets made widespread use of the Katusha rocket as artillery on the front lines of the Second World War. With the advent of long-range ballistic missiles, though, the time had come to remove missile command from the artillery. In the United States, control of long-range missiles was given to the Air Force. But in the Soviet Union, a new branch of the military, the Strategic Missile Forces, was created instead. The Strategic Missile Forces was yet another institution that reinforced the military focus of the nation's ballistic missile program. The Strategic Missile Forces was, after all, going to be the ballistic missile program's main customer. And the new head of the Strategic Missile Forces, Marshal Mitofan Nedelin, was not happy with Korolev. Nedelin believed that Korolev's space projects were a distraction from the main goal of developing an ICBM as an effective nuclear deterrent. Moreover, by rejecting Korolev's request to create a new organization to oversee space exploration, and instead creating the Strategic Missile Forces, the Soviet government was making its goals very clear. The nation remained focused on building ICBMs as a nuclear deterrent. There was no interest in space exploration. Thus, when Korolev should have been at the height of his power after Sputnik with the political capital to pursue whatever projects he pleased, he was in fact quite weak. In 1959 and 1960, Korolev's weakness opened him up to challenges from other chief designers. During these years, he would simultaneously lose his monopoly as the nation's only designer of intercontinental ballistic missiles and space exploration projects. Korolev's troubles began in 1959 when Khrushchev asked Valentin Glushko, the nation's leading designer of rocket engines, whether it was possible to build an ICBM using storable propellants. Khrushchev wanted to move away from the cryogenic fuels used by Korolev's R-7 missile. Glushko said that it was possible to build an ICBM using a storable propellant known as unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, or UDMH. Glushko further suggested that Korolev should not be in charge of designing this new ICBM using UDMH, and instead, the project should be given to another chief designer, Mikhail Yangel. 
Glushko's suggestion that Yangle, not Korolev, should build this new ICBM will have significant consequences. An infamous feud will arise between Glushko and Korolev, and this feud lays the seeds for the Soviet Union's failure to develop heavy-lift rocket engines during the space race. So, a little bit more background is probably in order here to understand what's happening. Because to say Korolev and Glushko had a complicated relationship is a cosmic understatement. I previewed this a little back in episode 2, but Korolev and Glushko knew each other since at least the 1930s, when they worked at the same research institute on aircraft design. Korolev rose to be deputy of that research institute and was Glushko's boss. In 1938, Glushko was swept up by the Great Purge and falsely accused Korolev of anti-Soviet activities. This accusation helped Korolev get sent to the Gulag, where he very nearly died. Korolev survived when he was assigned to work on aircraft design as a prisoner. During the Second World War, Korolev was reassigned to work on rocket engines. As a result, he was placed in a design bureau under the direction of Glushko. So, in part because of Glushko's false accusations in 1938, the two now found their roles reversed from their time at the Research Institute. Glushko was now the superior, and Korolev the subordinate. At the end of the Second World War, both Korolev and Glushko were sent into Germany to restart limited V2 production. It was in Germany that Korolev's star began to rise. It became clear to those working in the early phases of the Soviet ballistic missile program that Korolev, not Glushko, was the one with a bright future. Korolev was able to work as a team with German rocket engineers and quickly acquired their technical know-how. This was probably helped by the fact that Korolev spoke German. Glushko, on the other hand, earned a reputation as someone difficult to work with. Eventually, Korolev was promoted over Glushko as chief designer and became responsible for the overall design of Soviet ballistic missiles. This was also how Korolev came to chair the group that would become known as the Council of Chief Designers. Glushko, on the other hand, remained focused on rocket engines. Korolev's promotion over Glushko appears to have generated at least some resentment from Glushko. But to be fair to Glushko, in 1959, he was not simply being spiteful when he told Khrushchev that Mikhail Yangel, rather than Korolev, should be the one to design the new ICBM using storable propellants. Yangel was in charge of an engineering design bureau that focused on the use of storable propellants. Yangel had already developed two missiles using these fuels, the R-12 and the R-14 rockets. These missiles could be kept in a state of battle readiness, which is exactly what Khrushchev was seeking 
for an ICBM. Khrushchev took Glushko's advice and asked Yangel whether he could design an ICBM with storable propellants. Yangel thought the task would be difficult, but he would try. So Yangel began working on the R-16 Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. For Korolev, Glushko's suggestion that Yangel should design an ICBM was unforgivable. ICBMs had been Korolev's exclusive domain up to this point. In fact, when Korolev learned of the R-16 missile, he tried desperately to maintain his monopoly over ICBMs. He told Khrushchev that he could solve the problems with the R-7 missile in a new version of that missile, the R-9, using high-speed pumps and other advancements to improve fuel time. But when Khrushchev still seemed interested in an ICBM using storable propellants, Korolev offered to handle both missile projects. At this point, Khrushchev reportedly lost his temper and reminded Korolev to whom he was speaking. With that, Korolev's monopoly over ICBM development was firmly ended. Korolev then tried to hurt Glushko in the same way that Glushko had hurt him. At this time, Glushko was the nation's leading rocket engine designer. Glushko had a monopoly on all high-thrust rocket engines. For example, Glushko was working on the engines for both Yangel's R-16 rocket and Korolev's R-9 missile. Korolev, however, would try to break Glushko's monopoly over rocket engine development, just as Glushko had broken Korolev's monopoly over ICBM development. Korolev's opportunity came when Glushko reported problems making the engine for the R-9 missile and considerable delays ensued. The problems were really not surprising. The engine that Glushko had been asked to design would put out 280,000 pounds of thrust. This was far in excess of any engine available to the Soviets at the time. Such an advancement in rocket engines would likely entail delays as engineering problems arose. Korolev, however, took the delays as an opportunity to try to source the rocket engine from a new chief designer, Nikolay Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov was not the best engineer to design a new rocket engine, though. You see, Kuznetsov actually designed jet engines, and he was quite well known in that field. But the Soviet aircraft industry was in steep decline in the late 1950s and 1960s as the Soviet government focused on ballistic missiles rather than aircraft. As a result, Kuznetsov was looking for work to keep his design bureau employed. He accordingly reluctantly agreed to consider Korolev's request to design a rocket engine. But unlike many of the other chief designers involved in missile projects, he had no interest in outer space. But Ustinov and the Military-Industrial Commission ruined Korolev's plans. Ustinov was not willing to take a gamble on Kuznetsov for a project as important as the R-9 missile. 
Ustinov rejected Korolev's plan to source the R-9 missile's engines from Kuznetsov and ordered him to stick with Glushko despite the delays. But Korolev would continue to promote Kuznetsov in the future as an alternative source for rocket engines. And importantly, Glushko knew what Korolev was doing, and the relationship only worsened. In the middle of this infighting between Korolev and Glushko, and the introduction of Yangle as a new designer for ICBMs, yet another engineer rose almost out of nowhere to represent an even greater challenge to Korolev's dominion over both ICBM development and space projects. This engineer was none other than Vladimir Chelemy. Chelemy was a designer of cruise missiles for the Navy. In this field, he was very successful. He obtained numerous rewards, including Hero of Socialist Labor. He was also given the title of General Designer, a title unique to naval engineering bureaus that carried more prestige than the title of Chief Designer. Despite his origin in tactical missiles, in 1958 and 1959, he looked up and saw the fame and attention that Korolev had achieved for building the R-7 ICBM and launching Sputnik. And then he thought, I should really get into that. So Chelemy developed plans for a new ICBM and new space projects. And Chelemy was far more ambitious than Korolev ever was. Chelemy proposed the creation of anti-satellite spacecraft, orbital fixed-wing spacecraft, and interplanetary starships for missions to Venus and Mars. Chelemy's plans probably would have been dismissed out of hand as simply fanciful, but he had deep support within the Communist Party. Once again, a demonstration that personal relationships, not merit, was the main driving force behind the approval of any particular spaced project. Chelemy also had one other ace up his sleeve. Khrushchev's son, Sergei Korolev, worked in Chelemy's design bureau. Now, both Khrushchevs have denied that there was any kind of nepotism. But Nikita Khrushchev definitely showed quite a bit of favoritism to Chelemy and his design bureau. And even if Khrushchev did not engage in any intentional nepotism, the presence of his son in Chelemy's design bureau definitely gave Chelemy an edge over other chief designers. For one thing, Chelemy was not shy about ingratiating himself with the elder Khrushchev by telling stories about the wonderful work by his son. At the very least, this relationship provided opportunities for informal communication between Chelemy and Khrushchev. And in a world where projects hung on personal relationships, that was a major advantage. In April 1960, Chelemy made his move. Khrushchev was on vacation in Crimea and invited Chelemy to come visit. At this time, Chelemy presented his various proposals for missiles and space projects. 
What most interested Khrushchev, though, was the proposal for the UR-200 missile. Chalamy pitched this as a universal rocket, hence UR, which would serve both as an ICBM and a space launch vehicle. In this proposal, Chalamy did something that Korolev had not. He gave attention to the needs of the military first, in space exploration second. After the presentation, Khrushchev gave the green light for the development of the UR-200. So, in the years immediately after Sputnik, the United States and the Soviet Union were headed in opposite directions. The United States created NASA to centralize its space exploration projects and to develop a coherent national space exploration program. The Soviet Union rejected the creation of any new organization and proceeded to approve individual space projects on an ad hoc basis. Indeed, after Sputnik, any semblance of a Soviet space program would be even more decentralized and less coherent. Before Sputnik, Korolev was the only chief designer working on space projects. But after Sputnik, Chelemy and Yangel also entered into the picture. And going forward, the Soviet Union's space program will be built around the influential personalities of Chelemy, Korolev, and Yangel. The Soviet Union's organization of its space exploration efforts, or really the lack of organization, will lead to mind-boggling inefficiencies that go a long way to explaining the outcome of the space race. Imagine, for example, if various NASA facilities like JPL, the Goddard Space Flight Center, and the Lewis Flight Propulsion Lab didn't work together but rather each proposed their own space projects, some of which will be duplicative of one another, and then competed for funding for these projects from the same finite pool in the federal budget. This was basically what the Soviet Union was doing with Chelemy, Korolev, and Yangel. And of course, the Soviet Union's failure to create a separate institution to handle space exploration meant that all Soviet space projects had to be justified in the context of the nation's ballistic missile program. This meant that a space project had to have some military utility in mind if it was to ever have any hope of being adopted and funded. NASA obviously did not have this problem. But then in January 1960, there was an abrupt change of policy in the Soviet government. This change in policy created hope for a long-term space program under Korolev's direction. On January 2nd, Khrushchev summoned the main leaders of the Soviet space exploration efforts to date. This included Korolev, Glushko, and Soviet Academy of Sciences President Keldesh. Khrushchev told this group that Soviet success in outer space was no less important than the development of military rockets. The exact reasons for this abrupt change in attitude is still a mystery to historians. 
Some have speculated that the change was due to statements made by American politicians, such as then-Democratic Senate Majority Leader Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson stated that a national goal of the United States should be to control outer space, because control of space means control of the world. It is also possible that the United States Discoverer program caused a change of heart. Discoverer was actually a covert CIA operation to obtain satellite reconnaissance of the Soviet Union. It is possible that this concrete military application of satellites crystallized the Soviet Union's need to compete in outer space. Whatever the reason, Korolev took the hint and used the opportunity to propose a comprehensive space exploration program. At the center of his proposal was the N-1 rocket. The N-1 would put out 2 to 4 million pounds of thrust and be capable of lifting 40 to 80 tons into orbit. The N-1 would be the key to his other extensive proposals for a piloted spaceflight program, the creation of space stations, a manned flight to the moon, and interplanetary spaceships. To achieve broad support for his big space plan from engineers, Korolev ensured that each engineering design bureau received a part of the project. This included both Glushko and Kuznetsov, though Glushko obviously was not happy about that. Korolev even amended the proposal at the last minute to carve out responsibility for manned spaceflight for Chelemy. In June 1960, the Council of Ministers and the Central Committee adopted Korolev's proposal in a joint decree. So while the Soviet Union would not establish a new institution for space exploration like NASA, there would be a new space exploration program overseen by Korolev. But Korolev still answered to Ustinov and the Military-Industrial Commission. This meant that military needs often still took priority over space exploration. For example, on January 9, 1960, just one week after Khrushchev said a space program was just as important as military rockets, Ustinov told Korolev that there was no task more important for Korolev than the Zenit military reconnaissance satellites. Ustinov's instruction to prioritize military needs at this time was rather annoying, because Korolev at that moment was in close competition with NASA to launch the first man into outer space. Next time, I will talk about those efforts by NASA to catch up to the Soviet Union and achieve a meaningful first in outer space. Interested in seeing photos related to this episode? Check out spaceracehistorypodcast.com or click on the link in the description for this episode.